the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Hello, everybody, and welcome to season two of Don't Push Pause podcast. Oh my God, we're back! Man, I know we were only gone for like a month, but it it feels like a really, really long time. I can't believe I can't believe it. We, we even uh, took that much time off. I mean, what have we been doing? I missed you, Lindsay. How are you? I'm honestly, I'm a little sick right now. Yeah, I feel I feel bad for you. It's okay. You know what? I was really looking forward to this episode, and um, I didn't want to sit on it another week. Well, I, t- I texted you this morning, and I said, we don't have to do this. We can <laughs> wait a week, and you said, uh, it would be unpunk of you to yeah. to not record Repo Man. Yeah. We we just have to do it. We have to do it. We're doing it. So um, you're going to have to deal a little bit with my Kathleen Turner impression. Yeah. I wish it was Kathleen Turner's voice. Really lame interpretation. Well... Today we're doing Repo Man, which we we didn't get this in last year. So yeah, we've uh, talked about doing yeah, we've this. Talked one. about doing it, but I'm glad it is finally here. Uh, this is, I think, like the epitome of of what a great cult film is. This is one of your favorites, right? Yeah, this is. I mean, as far as like, I, I don't know if it's one of my favorite films of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. A million movies are my favorites of all time, but it, I don't know. I guess it is in a way, but I guess like if I had to pick genre, like if you're picking the genre of like famous cult movies, this would be number mm-hmm. one. Dang, that's a big statement. Is this your favorite Harry Dean Stanton movie, or is that maybe your pick of the that's week? That's my pick of the week. And what yeah. is your pick of the week? My pick of the week is uh, Paris, Texas by uh, Vim Vendors, yeah. which came out the same year as Repo Man, 1984. Was it after Repo Man? It came out after Repo Man, yeah. Okay, okay. And I think it is Harry Dean Stan's best performance, and I I do believe I've read interviews where he said it's like the best role that he's got in his career. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about this one. What is your pick of the week, then, since we're talking about picks of the week? <laughs> um, mine is uh, from the same cinematographer, director of photography, as uh, Repo Man. Robbie Mueller. Robbie Mueller. And that is Dancer in the Dark from 2000. So another one that's a little bit later, but I I really do. I, I mean, I'm. You went a, for like the most cheerful movie of 2000. <laughs> I really was. Yeah. Man, um, do you remember this movie? Oh, well, I remember it well. Yeah. It's one. It's a one time watch for me. Yeah. I, I think I remember the first time I saw it and I was pretty inconsolable for like an hour and a half afterwards and it was uh i watched it with my partner at the time and we were just like i don't know how to continue on with my day really it's to me it's (laughs) it's been one of the few movies i've ever watched where i was like this certainly can't get any more bleak than this (laughs) and then uh and then you're like wow okay well it certainly does i I don't know i'm not someone that gets turned off by a really sad movie at all. I by no means am not either. Some of my favorite movies are extremely dark. But, Devastating, uh, yeah. Dancer in the Dark is, it's a tough one. It is. But it's certainly no Repo Man. Yeah, Repo Man is, I think, a pretty fun movie. It's one of the more quotable movies, I think. And it is by no means 100% coherent, I don't think. But yeah. I do believe that 
it is one of the few films in cinema history that sort of glides along so many different genres and still manages to work like almost a hundred percent. It's weird because it does teeter on like it it rides this lane of like, if it goes a little bit this way, it's going to go off the rails and not be, you're not going to be able to follow it. Yeah. Um, But it really somehow by the end, you're still, you're still with it. Yeah. And Repo Man's one I've wanted to do for a while. I mean, several reasons why, uh, you know, I've wanted to do this movie. Number one, I've always been oddly fascinated with punk culture, like punk rock culture, okay. especially the interpretations of punk rock culture yeah. in early Hollywood 80s movies, yeah. which there's been many interpretations <laughs> of it, a lot that I think are absolutely ridiculous yes. and, and could be considered just exploitive and lame. just lame. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Repo Man is like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, uh, sort of like a cartoony version of punk but it you know it, it rides that line you know and I, th- I think it is as far as like getting it I think that's what part of the reason why it makes the movie good and still hold up because you're not seeing this sort of dated ridiculous version of punk and it also like the there's a few scenes in the beginning that really feel like the camera just happened to be there in this in this scene where there's like either a show or just like just punk kids hanging out and hitting each other but it's not a movie that is relying on the look of punks necessarily or that culture it just um it just is yeah and 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 it does utilize i think the the authentic version of punk music of the 80s it was really representing bands that probably not many people knew of outside of like los angeles Mm -hmm. um and the soundtrack is really good and i think it wasn't uh you know, it wasn't like Billy Idol on the sound soundtrack to like represent punk music or something like that. Or uh, I think it had a, again, this more like authentic vibe, this authentic feel all the way down to the, to the representation of the music. Yeah. So talking about the music is definitely one topic we're going to be hitting on. Yeah, we'll hit on the music. Definitely we'll hit on the cast because this is just the cast and crew. I mean, this is a movie that had uh, just about everybody that worked on this film went on to have a a pretty amazing career in Hollywood. I think this is one of those just very low budget, but it looks amazing. Uh, It sounds amazing. The acting is amazing. And then it also, you know, it was a movie that people found out about it and its success grew uh, slowly. But I think that this movie, people are still talking about it, you know, 30 some years later. So I think another thing we could talk about is, this might go back actually to a little bit of when we talked with uh, Andre Gower and Henry McComas from Monster Squad and from Wolfman's Got Nars back in episode 11, talking about what is cult, what is a cult movie. And this might be, because I think that this movie fits into a specific idea of what the original idea of, of yeah. specifically 80s cult movie. Yeah, we movie. can break that down a little bit. So, and, but, I, and there certainly can be something I think that could be argued to the to the death of of course what you know same thing with what true punk is man (laughs) so we're gonna talk about punk rock cult movies (laughs) sorry we're never gonna sell out on this podcast (laughs) you're never gonna hear a sponsor on this podcast (laughs) cut to like three episodes later bought you by viagra right viagra viagra so, yeah, a lot to talk about. I think this is going to be a fun discussion. I've been excited to yeah. um, do Repo Man. And 
yeah, it's, it's, you know, we'll get into it. Director Alex Cox, a young director who I think, you know, again, I always say this, but just, I love it when a first time director just knocks it out of the park with yeah. a great film. Yeah. And maybe where this movie got some inspiration, its origin and maybe some things too about how it, I'm thinking one, one specific, the trunk of the car, Yeah. Uh, how it, in, how it was inspired and then how it inspired other things too. Yeah. And I think this movie definitely inspired quite a few directors and quite a few films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and voice uh, round out, you know, you get our picks of the week, which we talked about before we'll round things out with our Murray moments. Um, so uh, before we get into our first clip from Repo Man, and it's going to be hard to pick one, for this movie there's too many good ones um can you kind of break down just if you can i know there's a lot going on in this movie <laughs> yeah just a, the shortest version of of what happens in repo man please okay i'm gonna try after he's canned from his job the somewhat aimless slacker punk rock type named otto played by emilio estevez happens into hanging out with some of la's down and dirty repo men you know the guys who repossess cars when owners can't make payments or default on payments whatever the situation may be a very unpunk thing to do after realizing he actually digs the job though otto gets a tip on a car worth 20 grand and also happens into a girl who claims that there are four dead aliens inside the trunk of the car which are emitting radioactivity the more that they decay and this cargo in the trunk of the car can then vaporize anyone that sees it or comes across it. I think that that's the best way that I can summarize it. There's a lot going on. There is, but no, that was a good summary. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you trying to break that down because it's, it's a tough one to kind of yeah. really get into. A... You weren't seeing, unless you've seen this movie, you weren't exactly expecting that alien yeah, no. detour, were you? Yeah, no. no. Uh, so uh, we'll go to our first clip, Repo Man. We'll come back. This is going to be fun. Talk about some repo, man. See you soon. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I never broke into a car, I never hotwired a car, kid. I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. Me too. What do you know? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Assholes. Let's go get a drink. This is a movie that really pops. Like the dialogue, to me, does have this sort of '40s like Humphrey Bogart, like with everybody saying "C," you know, like you <laughs> yeah, know, it's like you gotta understand "C," but it still feels fresh. It doesn't feel like this movie's trying to do like some sort of like uh, homage type thing. I mean, it certainly is borrowing, I think, from movies, just sort of very pulpy movies of the '50s that were, you know, didn't have big budgets, but they didn't necessarily have. And uh, I guess a movie to to speak of that it was one that I had heard of, but I'd never seen was uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which um, this movie definitely borrows. I think not only the presence of the lead character in Kiss Me Deadly, um, but also like the infamous trunk 
light that comes out, uh, which is uh, happens at the end of Kiss Me Deadly with the with the box that she opens up has this light. And we might want to say that that what that is in Repo Man. I don't okay. know before we go into that. Sure, so sure. In Repo Man, if you haven't seen it, basically the car that every all these different characters are like trying to track down mm-hmm. that's supposedly holding four these, dead aliens, four dead aliens, uh, uh, and is like filled with radiation. Whenever someone opens the trunk, which is in the opening scene of the movie, it 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 basically like uh, disintegrates this police officer who pulls over the guy who's driving the car through most of the movie. Anyone who um, opens the trunk, this light comes out, yeah, and emanates, and, and, and they're just obliterated. And you never get to see what's in the trunk. That's sort of the yeah. mystery. I mean, it's it's said in the movie what supposedly is in this trunk, but you never get to see what it is. Uh, very much like the suitcase in Pulp Fiction, you know, that uh, you just see this glow of light. It doesn't disintegrate anybody, yeah. but you don't know what it is. But I believe both Pulp Fiction and Repo Man borrowed from a 1950s movie called Kiss Me Deadly, and I like Al- this movie. Yeah, and yeah, Alex, and Alex yeah. Cox said he borrowed from Kiss Me Deadly, which yeah. came out in like the mid-50s and is very pulpy and has a box that people are trying to get a hold of, which at the end omits this very creepy <laughs> ray of light out of it, and you don't get to see what's in the box. Man, I have to say the the ending of when that happens, the, the scream that happens from the character that does it goes on for so long that it's like, it's, it's disturbing. It's unnerving. Yeah. But it's important to know where this movie, where this movie came from and what it went on to influence because it, it's definitely there. Again, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying in the beginning, it just, it's just so rare to me when the movie works that can be such a hybrid, weird film. Because it is a hybrid. It's a science fiction movie. It's a crime drama. It's a comedy. There's a lot going on in this movie, and it just kind of never lets up. And it's funny to me that this movie works. And it's also funny that this movie was made because it's so bizarre. I mean, it's not completely bizarre, completely out there, otherworldly. Like, for being a science fiction movie, it's funny how few moments of UFO or extraterrestrial or anything like that type of talk that that there is in this movie. But um, I think the fact that it, it is such a hybrid movie is one of the reasons that it works. It's just crazy to me that it worked in 1984 and that um i mean i guess it didn't do very well when it came out initially yeah i I, and i can see why this movie like wasn't like this huge hit and i i really don't know if this is a movie that would be made today because i don't think it could be made today because it would just they would even though this had a release from a from a major studio it wasn't funded by a major studio it was like funded independently with the guys that it would be distributed you know, but the studio didn't want to put up the money. But it was also one of the reasons they were given so much room to breathe with this, why why they were given, you know, the studio did kind of lobby for Emilio Estevez to be in this because he was a new and budding star. But um, Universal agreed that they would buy this, but it was on the contention. It's called, what is it, a negative pickup when the producer, executive producer puts up the money and yeah. then they you make the movie and then if the studio likes it then they'll buy it. Yeah. But there's always that chance that they're not going to and then you know you have this product that, that that's not going to get distributed. But I think it's really cool because they got so much freedom to make this bizarre movie. 
and I think too, like, and, and this is the thing, like, I know we're using words like weird and bizarre and those are good descriptors, but these kind of movies to me, like Repo Man, doesn't feel like they were like intentionally trying to, let's just make this as weird as we can, or let's like make this character as oddball as we can. The characters in these mo- this movie doesn't feel oddball to me, like these Repo Men guys their rules, the way that they act, their little sort of uh, rituals that they have. They These feel like real characters, like a guy that you'd run into if you went into the bowels of the city and like walked into this office. Like these feel like the real characters that you meet, but they're still able to say the snappy dialogue and get into these crazy intense situations um, without it feeling like all oh, this feels like force, like it was written on the page. You have all this great quotable dialogue that's like snappy and like, amazing but then you also have these gritty characters that feel very real to life that are saying all this dialogue and one of the reasons that that happens or that happened with this story is that alex alex cox who's the writer director spent time with actual la repo men and went on ride-alongs and i think um after he got done with the story or I don't know if it was after he got done with the story or after the movie was done that he talked to some actual like dudes who were repo men and they thought that it was kind of like a watered down version of how terrifying their job really is, which is kind of disturbing when you like think about what happens in this movie. But I think that that's what gives it a real appeal is Alex Cox's passion that he put into this, what he knew um, about repo men in general, you know, kind of like political, like satirizing that that's that's happening throughout the movie, and, and of course punk culture that he was fascinated with, not necessarily like involved with. Just you know, he, I don't think he considered himself a punk rocker or anything, but he was fascinated with the culture. But I think that that's the reason that this movie works is he he wasn't trying to be anything. It's just what came out of him and what he was into at that at that point in his life. And I I find it also really interesting that I mean Alex Cox is is not an American filmmaker. You know, as a foreign filmmaker, an English filmmaker, uh, this movie feels very Americana type to me. Yeah. Like it it feels like very like heart of the you know city of like industrial working you know blue collar working american 80s type films it fits in there with any like you know this is like a pulpy version of blue collar which we talked about on one of the other you know episodes yeah um and it's it's interesting to me that he was able to capture that but but almost like maybe being an outsider looking in he was able to be more observant than someone like living it so yeah he came over here from, or he came over to the U.S. from England and went to UCLA film school. I think he was a pre-med grad, and, and uh, but was interested in films. But he, he felt like American culture was somewhere where he could actually make, make the stories that he was looking to do. So he came over here, went to UCLA, and then that's kind of how this, this started. Repo Man was not his first dive into into um writing or making movies at all but it was certainly i think like the biggest thing at that point in his life that put him on the map yeah he'd done like a couple of short films but certainly mm-hmm. not not a feature this was like his full-on yeah. first feature originally dick rude who plays one of the punks duke in repo man had the story leather rubbernecks and showed it to Alex Cox. They kind of workshop some things together, and that's what happened with Repo Man. 
And yeah, hooking up with three producers to help you actually make this happen. You can see the progression of how this story just like added or how the story of Repo Man just kind of added more people, which made it stronger. And it, yeah, it wasn't just Alex Cox. He he wouldn't, I don't think he was strong enough at that point in his career to, to do everything yeah. that, that, that this movie ended up being. And uh, we should move on to our next clip, but I want to say one short thing because uh, Robbie Mueller, who's a cinematographer of this film, I think uh, Alex Cox was very fortunate. And they, he, Alex Cox has said in interviews where they, they were knew. shooting for the stars. Like they were like, if you could get any cinematographer, because yeah. they did have <laughs> someone in mind and they were like, yeah, this stuff's not very good. And so he, they were like, if you could have any cinematographer you wanted, who would you have? And he said, Robbie Mueller, who was already had uh Robbie Mueller's a Dutch cinematographer who had already built a long lasting relationship with Vim Vendors, had already probably shot like twenty to thirty features. Yeah. Um and I just wanted to say like a quick thing with Robbie Mueller because he is connecting our uh picks of the week. Uh he shot Dancer in the Dark, he shot Paris, Texas. And he is a you know, a very unique cinematographer. He is very much known for shooting night exteriors and making them look natural and also doing like beautiful day exteriors, like using natural sunlight is also to capture like beautiful images and beautiful, beautiful compositions. And I think that for a low budget film that was made by a first time director, uh, there's some just gorgeous, gorgeous, visually striking moments. Repo Man, along with like John Carpenter's like Assault on Precinct 13, uh, both of these films were made for like relatively cheap budgets, but they feel like when you watch them, they look like they were made for millions and millions of dollars yeah. more yeah. than what was put into them. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the cinematographers that they're working with. Robbie Mueller is one of the greats. I love Robbie Mueller. He's one of my faves. Um, R.I.P. Passed away not too Last long year. ago. Yeah. Um, so we'll go, uh, we'll go to another clip from Repo Man. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast. We'll talk about the punk culture happening in the 80s in America. Oh. Yeah, I'm here, man. The lights are growing dim. I know a life of crime led me to this sorry fate. And yet, I, I blame society. Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. You're a white suburban punk, just like me. But it still hurts. You're gonna be all right, man. So starting out talking about the cast, I think, um, uh, like you were saying, um, Dick Rude, who plays Duke in the film, mm-hmm. the one of the main punk rock guys, yeah, who has the the great line of, <laughs> "Yeah, let's go get sushi and not pay." Not pay. Um, he was originally pegged as the lead, but the studio wanted a name, and Emilio Estevez was pretty hot at the time. He was, yeah, had been in a number of films and was about to break out and I do think that he it was the right choice to to go yeah. with Emilio Estevez I think he really does encompass a guy who's like not t- 
totally punk, not totally anti-establishment, but well, he is kind of like, and I think you used the term like floundering, which I yeah, think is he's a good just, way to describe he's just, him. He's just kind of a floater. He doesn't really have an identity. Everything that happens is he's he's very malleable. And I mean, even the idea of Otto starting out and we assume he's like a punk rocker, but he's kind of like, for want of a better word, he's kind of like soft for a punk rocker. He really happens into being a repo man with pretty easy for him to fall into it. At first, he's like, yeah, F that. But like he falls into it. He just kind of goes along with everything. And, you know, like we were saying with Kiss Me Deadly, that's what happens with that character, too. But with Otto, he's, um, yeah, he's just kind of like going to roll with this. Yeah. And even up until the ending, and I mean, we can, we'll, we'll get to the ending, but I, I think it's, there's almost some innocence that comes along with Otto's character, but it's also, uh, he's, he's not punk. He's not a business guy. He's not really, he's just kind of there trying to find himself. Yeah. And I, what I, I like that he has this like very basic look about him. You know, he, yeah. he, he kind of looks like an all American boy, but he does have a little edginess to him. I think Emilio Estevez, like I've always liked him. And I think yeah. that he does have this like high energy exuberance. He has, I think one of the best movie laughs of like any actor. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But I do think that he was, I do think that he is one of those actors that never got, it, it was hard for him to like, I just, I, I never bought him as like an older person. So like movies where he, as soon as he like was in his like thirties and forties, yeah. he was never somebody that I think like got out of that young, he, he just always is like young in my mind. Like I could never buy him as like an older character. And I do think he did some of his best work in the eighties from Repo Man to Breakfast Club to yeah. a real big favorite of mine that I know is like, you, you know, you're not the big a big fan of westerns, but <laughs> young young guns and young guns too. I I will defend to the end. I think those are, are you and our friend Matt great. Pace. I think those are great films, and I think a lot of that is you know that excitement and that energy that Emil Estevez brings. Yeah, and I think he's great in this movie. I think he really does. I can't believe you didn't bring up Men at Work. Men at but. Work, yeah. <laughs> but I but I do think that he is our he's like basically our guide he's our tour guide through this city of los angeles in this underbelly of the city Uh, he is our tour guide through all these scenes and all these different characters and the way he handles the scenes and the way he handles himself uh you feel you feel kind of like comfortable with him you feel like uh you're seeing things through his eyes and he's willing to listen to people and assess situations, and I think that he makes the movie very interesting. Like, and I do feel like we're kind of seeing things through his eyes, and I, I, I enjoy. I feel like I'm along for the ride with a character, and I think that's important. I think when anytime you have a movie where a central mm-hmm. character is like taking you through, and it's like how they anticipate and deal with situations in a realistic way is like whether or not I'm like enjoying the yeah. movie the whole time, and I feel like he doesn't really have any moments where he does anything that like is questionable. I feel like everything he does like makes sense. Yeah. It's almost like he's kind of like the control character. You're kind of waiting for him to have some type of like gumption to do something. But the whole progression of the story is, is him experiencing it, but it's what makes us um, able to identify with him. And I think had someone like Dick rude taken over for this role, like he plays Duke. I mean, like a straight up punk and he kind of looks aggressive 
and he doesn't have the softer appeal that I think you need in order to identify with the auto character personally, at least to me. Yeah. And, and maybe he could have done it. Like, you know, I don't yeah, maybe you know, he and, and may, you know, maybe he would have had a breakout career, but I do think that just the look and the vibe of Emilio Estevez is, was, was the right choice. And, uh, you know, I, I, we could spend a whole podcast just talking about the cast of this movie, but, you know, I'd like to make a couple quick mentions of Cy Richardson, who plays Light. I think he's fantastic. Yeah. He has a couple of good one-liners, and I think he really- <laughs> Get in the car, white boy. And I, and I think he, too, is like someone who, I, I think in an interview I read, he was basically trying to play this. He said, I was basically trying yeah. to play this as a black Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. And I do get that in his performance. You know, it's like, no matter what's going on, he his like heart rate never goes up. He plays everything super cool. I've seen guys like Light, the Light character. Like, I've worked with guys yeah. like him, and, and you know, you're just like, man, the world could be burning around you, and you'd be like, oh, it's cool. Man, I'm just gonna Chill. smoke a joint and not worry about it. And I, I think he plays it so well. And uh, kind of moving on to Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Emilio Estevez, even though he's the star of this movie, Harry Dean Stanton's portrayal of the character of Bud, I think, has just such a great presence in this film. I, I know you have strong opinions about it as well. I mean, I think I think Harry Dean Stanton is the, for me, the the standout character in this movie i kind of love every everything that he does including how his character does a complete 180 halfway through the movie but i i love that about him because at at the end you're like yeah his character totally would do that so everything kind of makes sense yeah i totally agree and i'll talk more about him in my pick of the week but uh harry dean stan just does have this he just has this quiet intelligence, very calm, soothing voice. And I think he totally sets up the story so well. He legitimizes, makes me believe that this these repo men exist and uh, showing Emilio Estevez the ropes and kind of becoming a father figure. Um, he really, uh, I think, is the key to helping sort of, sort of connect all the characters and, and connect us to the world of the repo men and, and what they represent. And, and I do, like you said, uh, He's such a smart character, but he does sort of contradict himself. Like he buy into all these beliefs and these codes that he has, and then he contradicts himself. and And you want to be angry about it, but but in some ways, I think it makes the uh, you love him even more. So we try to briefly move through some of these other characters. Um, so many characters in this movie, and and they're so rich, even though uh, some of them just share a tiny bit of screen time. I think uh, they they make a big impact. And so many eccentric characters, and one of the most eccentric is uh, the Miller character, played by Tracy Walter, and um, and he he works at the shop with the Repo Men. He seems kind of almost like a throwaway character a little bit, but he has um, this spiritual quality about him. He seems to see things that some of the other guys don't. He's way more peaceful than the other guys. I mean, not maybe not peaceful, but he's um what would you say? I would say peaceful. Yeah. He has a okay. well and he has a particular like cadence in his voice. Yeah. And he is like all these other guys are like very I think they're the like pumped up macho guys. Yeah. This and, guy's doing a shaman and, dance to like heal Emilio yeah. Estevez when he gets and beat he, up. And <laughs> even when they're all uh or trying to tell yeah. Emilio Estevez like tell us the name of the guy that beat you up. We we all want to basically go out tonight and and beat him up. Yeah. And they're all like getting all pumped up about it. And like the Miller character, Tracy Walters characters is still just kind of like fixing, clipping his hair. And he's like unaffected by 
this whole like machoism that's going on. Like he, he's not, he's not functioning on like straight testosterone. And for most of the movie, you're just kind of like, what is going on with this guy? And I think we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about the, uh, the kind of little philosophy that he brings up that kind of runs all throughout this movie. And I do like what you say. Like, I think in another movie, he would be totally a throwaway character. Cause I yeah. think that his character, you could play this, too quirky and too weird to where it would just be like okay i get it he's like the strange guy that's gonna but he's enough come up later but he he plays it in a very strategic way that's like subtle enough to where he is weird and like hippie-ish but you you are listening to what he says because you don't think that he's like totally he's not playing it like a total like n- crazy person no you know? he's he's enough in the background that you you're like what's going on with this guy but then there's so much to distract you he's not the distracting part I want to make a short mention of Xander Schloss, who plays uh, in oh, Leo yeah. Estevez Otto's friend Kevin, because I think he does play this like pitch perfect, like sort of slacker nerd character that I think later yeah. on, like you know, I I would definitely say like Napoleon Dynamite is like clearly influenced by the Kevin character, and it's um, kind of weird how exactly the same even the look all the way are. down to the hair yeah. and like this sort of like be- i mean even beavis and butthead i would say like this guy's got way know, cooler hair kevin yeah. has way cooler hair but i would but... almost say like beavis and butthead kind of like are taking from like yeah the the kevin <laughs> character and uh just a quick little bit of trivia on his character uh he was hired for the movie and he's kind of an unknown actor like hasn't really done a ton of he was a movies. PA, wasn't he? Yeah, on, something, on yeah, something like that. Yeah. He, he got the bit. He got the part as Kevin. Was very excited, and then the studio wanted Chris Penn because Chris Penn was starting to build a name. And then they hired Chris Penn. He spent like two or three days and was playing it totally as like a party animal type character. And yeah. then they scrapped like Chris Penn more. and then rehired <laughs> Xander Schloss to play the Kevin character. And um, he he was a bass player. And during the production of this movie, he. Uh, became friends with the Circle Jerks and then ultimately became their bass bass player for like the next fifteen years, which is yeah. kind of wild. And they they have a small bit part in this. Yeah, in three as songs. The, uh, lounge the act. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I thought um, Olivia Barish, who plays uh, Layla, who's the kind of the the somewhat love interest, although she could really do a lot better than Otto. The way he kind of treats her in this movie, I love her performance. She kind of gives me the final laugh at the at the end of the movie where um, Emilio Estevez has this chance to take off basically in a time machine, right? Yeah. And spaceship. Yeah. Spaceship. And she's like, but what about our relationship? And Emilio Estevez is just like, he's like, what? F, F that relationship. <laughs> and then she freaks out on him. It's just like a funny. I, I love the I love that little interaction, how it ends. Blu-ray I have like the casting director is in on the commentary and I think she did a great job of like man yeah you know, it's bringing all these people together it's so strong even down to like the weird guy J Frank Parnell who's the lobotomized scientist that's driving the Chevy Malibu with these aliens and radioactive cargo yeah that guy who was originally or thought of originally to be Dennis Hopper uh, which I could have seen that 
totally going to Dennis Hopper, but I'm really glad it went to this guy because he's so bizarre and perfectly placed in, in, in each scene. Yeah, the casting director, I would be interested to see if this cast were done with any other ensemble piece, um, if it would have the same effect because it everybody just works so well. And also wanted to make a mention of Del Zamora and Eddie Velez, who play the Rodriguez brothers. Uh, they play another set of Repo Men that are sort of um, the they're like the competition. Rival. They're the rival yeah. to Harry Dean Stanton's character, and they have the infamous, awesome, uh, sort of almost like a drag race scene in the viaducts where they're driving through the water. Um, but they they also are searching for the car, and I think they have a couple of great comedic scenes yeah. Yeah. in the movie. Um, and um, Vanetta McGee. She is a the she's not a repo man, but she's I guess the secretary at at their at their office. She plays a solid role and kind of comes into play a little bit more later. She's awesome, um, and also had a a pretty long standing career too in the seventies. And I think lastly for me, um, Miguel Sandoval, who plays Archie, is kind of like dopey punk punk rocker who gets obliterated by the nuclear whatever is happening in that trunk. Uh, but Miguel Sandoval is very, very still active in his career. He's kind of one of those guys that you see in so many yeah. movies or TV shows or whatever. Um, he shows up in a lot of stuff. And so. I, I love it when he uh, makes fun of Duke for being scared to open up the trunk. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's, it ultimately becomes uh, Archie's doom and, and uh, so he makes fun of Duke, and Duke's like, just for that, you're not in the gang anymore. <laughs> uh, so funny. Anyway, th- yeah, this cast, we could we could go on. I mean, there's there's a hell of a lot more people we could talk about just in little bit parts that are that are so strong. But I, I think I've, there's no wasted uh, moments no. for for everybody. Everybody plays this like pitch perfect, and I think it really brings the movie to life. It really it makes the movie so like vibrant. Yeah. Um, I'll, um, want to get in real quick to talk about this, the punk culture and punk culture and, and the, an early eighties film and Hollywood the soundtrack and the soundtrack. I, I think, uh, Alex Cox, you know, was more influenced by punk music of, from like the UK in the seventies. Um, cause I, you know, and probably that's why he was interested in, in eighties punk rock, you know, coming out of Los Angeles, you know, punk very much was I think became popular in like the east and west coast and in the early 80s uh, a lot of bands Black Flag uh, The Germs uh, Circle Jerks would you consider the Minutemen punk rock yeah yeah. Uh, but I think like in the early 80s you know there was a there was a lot of you know like a lot of films came out that had essence of like what essentially became like what I would consider like cultural punk rock like with the spiked mm-hmm. hair and and sometimes it became like all about the look not so much about not trying to con- be in a conformist but uh I think like mid to late 80s like punk was getting pretty cartoony in Hollywood um early punk rock movies that we both kind of have agreed recently that we watched Suburbia has a pretty like hateful vibe to it yeah. it doesn't really have like the urgency and in yeah by you know energy that i enjoyed when i was a teenager and i watch it now i'm just like man i would i would not want to hang out with any of these people i would not want them to you know i was so come come over to my house i was so bummed out by suburbia 
But even down to uh, early 80s, like Terminator had a short, you know, Bill Paxton yeah. with a spike hair. Um, later in the, you know, mid 80s, we had certainly going into pop influences, even all the way down to like, I think like, you know, if you consider like dudes, a punk rock film or like, I would even say like, you know, that sort of crossover where like desperately seeking Susan, like sort of that pop punk, like yeah. kind of look of like, you know, you're dressing to like to fit make a, a statement. I think those types of movies are the ones that I grew up on, which were the more mainstream ideas of like what punk was and that being like return of the living dead for sure. But I love and adore that. Um, but it, 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 it's a comic book version of what punk was about or what it was. Um, and even, you know, you, Justin, you and I were talking about the, uh, after school special, um, the day my, my kid went punk you should look that up on YouTube. It was uh, just a lot of what what kind of mainstream culture took uh, from, you know, first, second, and third wave punk and made it kind of like this mainstream version. And I think Repo Man, while not completely suffocating that idea of what punk is or wanting to just have, have like I said, like a comic book version of it, um, I feel like it's one of it's one of the grittiest and most real depictions of what was at least the LA punk scene at that time. And one of the main reasons that Repo Man had any type of redistribution because when it initially was released, it was in theaters for a week and it did so poorly that it was pulled. One of the reasons that it was redistributed was because the soundtrack was released and it had sold like 50,000 copies and enough eyes were on it that, uh, and, and enough people were buying it um, back when you actually went out and bought albums and it was a thing. And people were like, okay, what's this movie? That What's the soundtrack that I'm buying? I want to see this movie now. And the cover of Repo Man of the album really is going to like appeal to your average punk rocker. And you've got, you know, bands, um, like we said, the Circle Jerks. I think the Circle Jerks had three songs on this. The the Plugs, who I think were an awesome addition and really helped round out this whole, because Alex Cox really wanted to try to encompass everything that was in the LA punk scene, which is going to include like, like Chicano, like surf punk. And which is a totally different vibe, but it's awesome. And it's all throughout Repo Man. So like the plugs had three songs, Fear. Let's see, Iggy Pop, who has the main Repo Man theme song. And Iggy Pop's usage in this movie really helped brought about a resurgence of his career because he was kind of in a bad place at that time. And Alex Cox went to him and, you know, he was not making anything at that time. And this kind of uh, reinvigorated his career. And, uh, you know, the interesting too about the soundtrack of this movie is that you really didn't, I mean, up until this point, there really weren't too many movies that had like a heavy, like multiple band, like rock soundtrack. I mean, certainly you had a few movie soundtracks that had like one signature, one signature song, like Harry Nielsen from In That Cowboy or Simon Garfunkel doing some songs for The Graduate. But this was like, multiple bands that were kind of breaking out in Los Angeles that were yeah. like relevant to that moment in time, to that city, to that 
uh, scene. And, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was popularity because people in other cities yeah. were kind of hearing this music and like, Whoa, this music isn't existing. Like where I'm at, it was like yeah. pretty fresh and wild and it wasn't something that you could turn on the radio and hear. So I think that they had a very original soundtrack to this, you know, that wasn't like the, you know, like your sort of like traditional score or whatever. Yeah. And with bands like Black Flag and, yeah, Suicidal Tendencies was on the soundtrack too. These were all bands that we all know now, or at least if you like this genre of music, you know who they are. But this was when, you know, we didn't have the internet and like local Southern California bands, it had to be distributed on a like mass market and the only thing that really like America knew, aside from like okay, like New York Dolls or something, or like the Ramones or Ramones and um, Sex Pistols, these things were unattainable or like you couldn't. Especially, I think of like Sex Pistols just because it's UK, it's it's not the US. But these were like a whole grouping of bands that were homegrown, yeah, and talking about things that were happening in politics at that time. And we're just speaking to a generation. So this this soundtrack was was really the reason, um, I, from what I can surmise anyway, was the reason that Repo Man got kicked um, into high gear again, and also was then noticed way more by critics, yeah. and and people were kind of amazed that this movie was made. <laughs> and I think the the majority of the success beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. The soundtrack kickstarting, you know, a yeah. second wave of people finding out about this film was uh, it really hitting during that kind of peak of VHS, yeah. you know, being a exploding and there being like more stores where people could rent movies. I think one that uh, became very popular on video cassette and then eventually on cable. And, and then this was a movie that I saw many, many times on, uh, it was like a, a Saturday night movie that you would see or, you know, Sunday night movie on, uh, even regular television. This is a very, if you haven't, if you're into criterion and you like what they put out, uh, the repo man is worth the money. I know like, you know, their DVDs and Blu-rays are a little more expensive, but there's a great, I mean, this is a great, it really is. It's, it's, so cool. it's got great supplements to it. And, um, there's an amazing, I texted you during this. There's an amazing Harry Dean Stanton interview. I just, I fell in love with him Yeah, and that, and a lot of this stuff you're not going to, they haven't, you know, it's not on YouTube. So, yeah. Uh, well, one last thing, you know, we wanted to talk about before we go to our picks of the week was the ending of these, this film. I think this is an ending that could not be satisfying for everybody. Um, it is a, it is, I think it's a bold ending. I, I love the ending of this. I think it's great where we are, the car that they've been chasing this whole time eventually becomes this like a uh, glowing orb and, uh, all these people that have been chasing after it, these scientists, the government, are all trying to uh, get access, get into this car now that's glowing, and uh, it's basically not letting them have access. Like one of the government agents, I think, like bursts in the flames trying to get into the car. And Miller, the character who has been this sort of side character that's been the hippie that, you know, we talked about. The peaceful repo man. Yeah, uh, he is able to get into the car and, and be unharmed by it. Uh, by this like radiation, this glowing weird thing that's happening to the car, and uh, then invites Otto Emilio Estevez's character to join him, 
and Emilio Estevez, who is more of the free spirit of this movie, joins them, and then mm-hmm. they're flying. They, you know, the car takes off, and it becomes this like it's flying around the city of Los Angeles, and it's the first time we actually see, you know, what looks like a big metropolitan city. Yeah. Everything else in this movie's been pretty contained. It is a very odd ending, and it's it's like. You know, again, I don't think everything in this movie like comes together in like a logical way. Like there are a lot of things that are left unexplained that just and at the end it gets very almost convoluted. Like a lot of stuff happens in the last 15 minutes of this. But what do you think of the ending of this movie? Where you you feel pretty satisfied? You felt pretty satisfied with? I do, actually. I, I love how it ended. I appreciated that it played up more of the science fiction angle because it, it for being considered a sci-fi part sci-fi movie it it does lack a lot in that department and so this idea of kind of bringing it back to aliens or time travel or something being radioactive due to outer space aliens to me really helped kind of bring it all together i mean we've already have throughout the movie we know that the that the government's trying to recover this car uh, so we know that there's kind of this government conspiracy, but there's not really, there's not a lot more to this sci-fi angle of it. And I, I love that it comes back to that for, for the end and kind of wraps up what Miller's um, philosophy that he's talking about earlier in the movie, the lattice of coincidence and how everything is connected and um, everything is one, like that that sort of thing, bringing that spiritual aspect. I love how it wraps up, actually. it. I mean, it's you can call it a cop-out if you want to like make something like totally wackadoo like that happen, but I don't know. I, I thought it was perfectly appropriate. Yeah, and I, I mean, I love the ending. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for movies that have bookends. <laughs> I, I love a movie that like opens with something and closes with the same significance on something in this mm. movie. The first frame of this movie is that car driving down the road and we see that there's something in the trunk that disintegrates this cop. And then the movie ends. The last frame of the movie is this car glowing and there's an importance of like what's happening with the car. And also now that I like think about it too, you know, we spend the whole time and Repo Man in East L.A., and which is this, like, really desolate, not what we think of L.A. as this, like, thriving, active metropolis. And it looks like a really desolate kind of wasteland. And uh, all of the movie is, is spent there. And like you were saying, that's when, uh, at the end, is when we see the rest of the city. And it might be by night, but we can tell, you know, by all the lights lit up. Yeah. And it and it, it lets us know that this car, Emilio Estevez, Miller, everyone involved is just a tiny microcosm of the world, yeah. of the world beyond. And it kind of just plays into that whole idea of spirituality. I, I don't know. It's it's kind of yeah. cool. And I, I mean, I, I think uh, watching this movie the last time, uh, I really, you know, we, I was talking earlier about like how this movie has influenced directors and Paul Thomas Anderson is a director that I that I truly love and mm-hmm. I can see this movie being like a huge influence on Magnolia like just yeah. it showing like a side of Los Angeles that you don't normally see all these like weird little coincidences like interconnectedness totally um I can see that this movie's totally. influence on on his filmmaking um and I I think this is again this is a the ending of this like totally shows that sort of idea that all these little weird things could happen all over the world. And like, you know, and that and say the same thing with the, 
how silly kind of some of the alien stuff with this movie is. It's not so silly in the sense of like, you know, you do hear all these stories of people would say, oh, I saw an alien sighting. It was this flashlight or it was this. And how this movie very much could have been that flashlight of them flying across the, you know, riding in the cars. Like someone saw that and was like, oh, I I thought I saw like a UFO in the air. Um, I like the way it comes together. Uh, I love the silliness mixed with the grittiness of this film. I honestly, you know, to me, again, like, like we said in the beginning, just to kind of wrap this up, this is to me like the epitome of a cult film. If you feel a cult film is something that's like a little bit outside the ordinary that a group of people love. And I think, you know, love a film in a sense of like, this is kind of a strange movie that not everybody in the world knows about, but it's like, not only do I think this is like kind of a weird quirky little film, but it's also one that I like truly love. Like I know all the lines, like I'm kind of like obsessed with. And I think like, this is, one of those movies that really like people don't like just like repo man. It's like, you're at, you're yeah. kind of like, yeah, I've yeah. seen that movie where you're like, no man, I, I love repo man. It's like one of my favorites. Or maybe you're somebody that thinks that a cult movie is one that uh, the, the movie failed at the box office and then was a sleeper hit at video stores and was hard to come by and it was word of mouth. And that's what makes it a cult movie. It is that too. I think it is just really like all definitions of a cult movie. Yeah. It, Repo Man is that. And when I think of when I think of the word cult, I think of like cult and culture, and I think something yeah. that like surpasses just like it's not a fad. It's not like a moment in time. Mm-hmm. You know, this movie came out thirty five years ago, and there's still screenings of it that are done. There's a Criterion you know, edition. Yeah, of yeah. It. There's a Criterion <laughs> edition. It's like, this is a movie that's been written about and talked about and people still admire and it's been influential and it's like very much like maintained a longevity and like has this like long lineage of, of, of people still finding out about it and it, it continuing to grow. And that's great. And if, if this is a film like you haven't seen is as odd and, and different as this movie is like I, I think like anybody could get into this film. I, I think it's it's really worthy of multiple viewings. I think it's it's a very significant and an important movie for uh American cinema. Yeah. I could not agree more. Well, uh let's move on to our picks of the week. I know that we're running kinda long, but there's a lot to this was a this was a fun one. I, yeah. I know I probably talked more you I love this do, one. I'm, I love this movie. I think I probably talked a lot in Ghostbusters. You know, things happen. Yeah. We get really impassioned. Well, let's talk about our picks of the week. Yeah. Um, I went, uh, so both of these are connected via Robbie Mueller, mm-hmm. cinematographer of Repo Man. Why don't you tell me about Paris, Texas? I'll tell you about Paris, Texas. It's also <laughs> connected via Harry Dean Stanton, who, uh, one of my favorite actors, and I also think this is like the role of his career. Um, and this is also, I will say in my top three favorite films of all time. And I say that with all sincerity. I know that I say there's a lot of movies like this is one of my favorite films. Paris, Texas is in my top three. I would have said that this was your number one. Yeah. Paris, Texas is in my top three, if not my number one favorite film of all time. So Paris, Texas written by Ellen Kit Carson, adapted by a story from Sam Shepard, directed by Vin Vendors and, uh, shot by Robbie Mueller. I don't know that there's a film that has ever come out that I think really gets to the heart of like regret, loneliness, despair without being totally like the bleakest movie that's ever come out. I mean, this movie has so much depth to it. This movie also, I think, is like plays as a mystery film. 
So the story is fairly simple. It's about a man named Travis, played by Harry Dean Stanton, who has been aimlessly wandering around, uh, presumably for multiple years. Um, he, he's in the opening of the film. He's finally reached a point where he's like wandering through the desert and basically uh, collapses. He's rescued by a uh, doctor in the town, and the doctor contacts his next of kin. Uh, who is his brother, played by Dean Stockwell, picks him up from the southern Texas town that he's been wandering around the desert in, takes him back to Dean Stockwell's home in Los Angeles that he shares with his wife. And what we soon to find out is Harry Dean Stanton's uh, six-year-old son. Harry Dean Stanton is basically not said a word, almost like a state of shock. We're start slowly, it's like a mystery of figuring out like, what was this, what happened to him? Where has he been for four years? Uh, why did he leave his son you know, whereas his his wife and the mother of the child that that he left, it's slowly revealed the the wife is drifted away, and Harry Dean Stanton finds out about her. So he wants to travel to find to reconnect with her, and he's starting to rebuild his relationship with his young son. The movie it takes its time. It's a very meditative. It's a very slow film, but I think for good reason. He slowly develops a relationship with his son, uh, played by screenwriter L.M. Kit Carson's actual son, Hunter Carson. Uh, he has the same name in the film, Hunter. He's about six or seven. Um, he travels with Harry Dean Stanton, and they go to try to reconnect with his mom, in which we—this is still a mystery to us, and they basically go to her place of work, sort of like a peep show where you go in, and there's a woman there that you can—there's like a phone, and it's one of those mirrors where they can't see you, but you can see them, and uh, there's a phone where you can talk to them and have strange conversations, but Travis, played by Harry Dean Stanton, the first attempt that he makes— to talk with her, um, doesn't go too well. He kind of like shies away. Um, the second attempt he makes, he basically tells a story of what happened to their relationship. He says, I want to tell you a story. And here's the thing. I'm not a big fan of like at the end of the movie where a character explains the plot or explains what happened. This is the one exception that I feel in a movie. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton has it's basically like a 12-minute monologue scene where he's talking and he tells a story of their relationship. She doesn't know that it's, that it's her husband who's behind the glass, but he starts telling the story and she's listening to it. And this, to me, is one of the most heart-wrenching, beautifully acted, amazing scenes that I've ever seen in a motion picture in my entire life. To me, it's my favorite scene of any movie of all time, I think. It is absolutely beautiful. After that scene happens, all the connectiveness, everything about these characters and like what he's been through kind of like washes over you because you find out that he's not been the best person in the world. He's just been a terrible, terrible person. And you are hit with all that regret that he has and that pain that he has. I won't give anything else away. Like, you know, I mean, this is a, a movie that I think has, there's an open endedness to it. This is a movie that I've loved for 20 years. This has been one of my favorite films. I would say this is a movie uh, at least 10 times in my life I've loaned to people and they've told me they didn't make it 20 minutes into the film. And I understand, and I understand that completely. I'll say the first time that I watched Paris, Texas, I absolutely hated it. And I, I, I don't think I made it all the way through. And then maybe a year after that, I watched it. And uh, the third time I watched this film, 
I know that's crazy. Like some people you watch a movie once and you're done. I'm one of those people, man, I'll hate a movie and I'll, for whatever reason, like if I hate a movie real bad, I want to watch it because I think I missed something or whatever. It bothers me. So I have to go back. Uh, the third time I watched Paris, Texas, there's two or three scenes in this movie that absolutely left me in tears. I mean, just like left me sobbing. This is a very emotionally affecting film. I think it requires multiple viewings. And I know that maybe that's a bad thing about a movie if you if you feel like you have to watch it multiple times. But I think that once the mystery is revealed and there's all these intricacies to the character and all these layers are like realized, you really get to the heart of this thing. And I think that the way it's made, the way, the why it's so paced so slowly, it's perfect. And also it has a beautiful score, Lap Steel score by Ry Cooter. The cinematography by Robbie Mueller in this, this is, I think, one of the most beautiful films ever shot. It, some of the scenes in this movie are almost like distractingly gorgeous. And Harry Dean Stanton in this movie, I think, plays such a battered soul. There's a couple scenes where he just really digs in so deep. I mean, I feel like he gives a performance of a lifetime. Uh, there's also a particular scene where and I, I could go on, I could do a whole podcast just talking about this, so I'm trying to make this short, but there's a particular scene uh, that always breaks my heart. Uh, Star- Harry Dean Stanton is walking across this bridge, and it's just a slow shot. We're slowly following Harry Dean Stanton as a profile as he crosses this bridge, and there's a man who's, like, screaming at the top of his lungs, and he's saying, you know, like, it do- nothing matters. Like, the the you know, we're all doomed. We're all going to die um, and he clearly seems like someone who has like some sort of mental illness. And finally, we're able to see both of these guys in the same frame. And Harry Dean Stanton has to get around this guy to keep moving because there's only so much room on the sidewalk of this overpass bridge. And uh, Harry Dean Stanton doesn't stop to talk to him, but he kind of gives him this sort of pat. And he kind of moves around him, but it's sort of this sort of like, it's going to be okay. Like, I understand. I hear you. I'm listening. And I think a lot of what this movie is is about... Uh, understanding and and listening and trying to keep an open mind. And even though people can do like these sort of horrendous things, there, there is like a a way to like turn things around. There is, there is like forgiveness out there in the same way that I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a very religious person. I think the same way that Repo Man has like a spiritual quality to it. I believe that Paris, Texas has this like very, very intense spiritual quality to it. Again, this is one, it's like, it, it, it's, it's a, it can be a challenging film because there is so little story given to you in the beginning that can seem unfair, but I, I guarantee you it's well worth it to, to take the time. Uh, if you're able to watch this movie on the biggest screen possible, it is my dream to one day. Um, I've always wanted to see this, uh, you know, really pristine print of this projected in the theater. Like uh, that would be if I if I could see that before I die, that'd be that'd be a dream come true. But anyway, that's Paris, Texas. Try not to spend like 20 minutes talking about this movie. I love it so much. Man, I love the sound of this one. It sounds like something that's right up my alley. All right, well, I blabbed about way too long on uh, Paris, Texas. No, you didn't so at let's, all. So let's go to your pick of the week, Dancer in the Dark, also shot by Robbie Mueller, a movie that I've only seen once and I'll probably only watch once in my life, but I did think it was a beautiful yet extremely bleak film. What can you tell me about this movie, which I know you've probably watched twice this week, which I find to be very amazing. Yeah, I don't know why I uh, like to torment myself and watch this movie. I've I've watched it quite a few times 
Um, and I remember the first time that I that I did see it, I, I said the same thing, that I only needed to watch that one time and that was going to be it. Yeah, I thought about doing this a couple episodes ago for Pick of the Week, but um, it's this one. It makes sense with, with uh, Robbie Mueller. If you've seen Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark, there's no doubt you're able to forget it. Robbie Mueller, as we said, also the DP of Repo Man, he helped create the beautiful vision for this film. And along with the starkly atypical visual components of this surrealist musical hybrid, Dancer in the Dark stars Icelandic musical legend Bjork, renowned French actress Catherine Deneuve, and Peter Stormare, who we also talked about from episode 23, Fargo. Set in 1964, Bjork plays the Czechoslovakian immigrant single mom working long hours at a manufacturing plant while making a pittance with a small side job. Although people in her life are kept in the dark until the second act, we see Bjork's character of Selma is very quickly going blind due to a genetic illness, and her working all the time is to save money for an operation that'll save her son's vision. Unfortunately for Selma, a trusted friend takes her money, which results in a devastating turn of events for her life ahead. This is a simple story, an old story, that of a brave and noble woman trying to do something heroic, but being betrayed by a confidant and becoming an unrealized martyr by the end of the story. The two most notable things that set this movie apart from pretty much anything I've ever seen are, one, how this is a transformative, dreamlike melodrama that crosses into musical territory. It only has seven songs, but still, they are incredibly powerful and help tell the story in the most literal sense. Selma wishes to live in a world that doesn't exist, one that is a dazzling and and where everything works out as if she's only truly happy when thinking about life through music and dance because in a musical she says nothing dreadful ever happens and two how the color aesthetic and Robbie Mueller's camera style changes from from a very drab look into rich vibrant tones each time we go from Selma's actual life and then an abrupt switch into her musical fantasy world of escapism The decision to use a handheld camera and digital video gives this entire movie a crossover feel by being uber-realistic, but then unexpectedly cutting into a seamless, almost imaginary quality. The lighting is mostly natural, or at least with minimal artificial lighting. And going going with the handheld digital video route, much of Dancer in the Dark feels like a documentary, but the switch into fixed camera shots for the musical numbers lets us know that we are very much removed from the tragedy of Selma's actual life. Some will absolutely love this movie and others might very well hate it. Dancer in the Dark is anything but your typical run-of-the-mill movie. This movie is still one of the most gutting yet beautiful films I've ever seen. Some will say it's very imperfect, to which I can somewhat agree, but because this is a surrealist, some would say improbable story, it's just best to abandon judgment and just let yourself be swallowed. Bjork's performance is incredible, and being backed by the impeccable Catherine Deneuve and the innocent compassion of Peter Stormare, man, this movie just cuts to my emotional core every time. And as a quick aside, Bjork came out um, the last couple years to indirectly say uh, 
a director, a Danish director, made multiple sexual advances towards her, inappropriately touched her, and made her feel very uncomfortable during filming. And being that I think this is the only movie that she's done, it was pretty obvious who she was talking about. Um, after thwarting his efforts, Bjork claimed that uh, Von Trier would publicly go on to say that she was difficult to work with, in essence, trying to badmouth or discredit her. Now, Von Trier does deny these claims. He's also made a, a lot of questionable statements regarding an admiration of Nazi aesthetics and saying he can sympathize with Adolf Hitler, even though he knows he was a bad person. I just feel it kind of necessary to bring these things up because if you do some research, you might, you know, find that. Um, and although things like this can taint our feelings towards a film that we love, it's not the film's fault. Dancer in the Dark does not objectify or sexualize women. The film does not harbor any undercurrent of hate. But if Bjork did suffer through what she claims, I'd hate for this film to be thrown in a trash bin just because of the director. And many others put their heart into making this picture. And I still think it's a beautiful film. In fact, the other night, Justin, uh, when we were having our phone meeting and you called me, it took a good 20, 30 minutes to get my head on straight and get out of being absorbed by that movie. But man, I, I Claire Dane's ugly cry to this one every time. It sometimes can be a great release to watch films like that, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, I don't know. There's something to be said about getting so emotionally connected to a film and like, even if it can leave you feeling like utterly destroyed. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a powerful film, but dancer in dark, I think one day I'll probably revisit it, but it's still uh, just thinking about the last like 30 <laughs> minutes of that. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready yet. Please don't be dissuaded, um, you know, to see this movie or anything. It It is really a wonderful film. And the story by itself is, is um, yeah, just incredible. It, it is really sad, but. I think it's worth it to, to, to keep an open mind on these films. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are our picks of the week. Dancer in the Dark and uh, Paris, Texas. We really went dark. Compared yeah, to Repo yeah. You Man know, this is that. this has been a, this has been a darker than I thought. So it's been a long, long yeah. uh, episode with, but but it's but it's good. These these are all movies that you know we have real feelings about. Yeah. But um, let's move on. I have no idea what you're gonna do. Maybe things are about to get darker, or maybe they're gonna be lighter. I just don't know because I don't know what you're gonna do. But here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. I gotta say, this is gonna be the most depressing Murray moment you've ever heard. I'm just kidding, Justin. It's not. Um, but the timing of us doing Repo Man is so perfect for this Murray moment. 
And as with anything Billy related, I love when he unexpectedly pops up in a movie or on TV. He was just like in a commercial on MSNBC for William Murray golf uh, clothing line. And I was like, what? I know that voice. Um, anyway, that's not what this Murray moment's about. When Repo Man came up in this episode, I couldn't help but automatically think punk rock or Iggy Pop. And I knew exactly where I wanted to go for this segment. And why this is perfect timing is because in, in just two short weeks, the new Jim Jarmusch movie starring Billy and featuring Iggy Pop, The Dead Don't Die, is coming out. And in true Jarmusch fashion, the entire movie is riddled with an impressive cast of who's who of Hollywood and beyond. But I'm not going to talk about this movie until after it comes out. No, no. I'm going to dial it back about 16, 17 years to a previous Jarmusch movie, which also featured Billy and Iggy, not in the same scene, but in the same movie. And coincidentally enough, the same cinematographer from both mine and Justin's pick of the week and Repo Man, Robbie Mueller, was also one of the DPs on this film. Funny how that works out, right? Anyone remember Coffee and Cigarettes from 2003? Justin? Oh, you know it. (laughs) Uh, This movie is a series of 11 vignettes, all mostly between two people interacting somewhere in the middle of their day, normal or even mundane moments of life, talking about whatever, and drinking coffee and smoking. Jarmusch said he called up Billy to see if he'd be interested in doing the picture. Billy was dodgy at first, but after Jarmusch said it would just take one day, Billy was on board, and then not to bother him about the project until that moment. And if you haven't heard, Billy's driven Sofia Coppola, Ivan Reitman, Wes Anderson, all of them a little crazy about how distant he can be until a project actually rolls around. Either way, Billy tends to stick with directors he loves and admires, but it can be a gamble as a director even though he said he'd be down for the project. So, Billy's seven-ish minute segment in Coffee and Cigarettes is called Delirium and features Riza and Giza from Wu-Tang Clan. As it goes, Riza and Giza find Billy secretly moonlighting as a server at a diner. Billy uh, offers the guy some coffee and being as health conscious as they are, Riza and Giza decline and continue to drink their tea. Billy, however, begins drinking coffee straight out of the pot and sits down with the guys. And then the guys start schooling him on how coffee is so bad for him and that it can give him serious delirium and maybe that's Billy's problem. Afterwards, Billy has this nasty cough after lighting up a cigarette and Riza checks him on that one too, enlightening him as to why smoking is so bad for his health. But Billy figured anything that contains ingredients that once were used as an insecticide must be good for you, right? Are you a bug, Bill Murray? Riza and Giza ask him. What's particularly funny and inside about this scene is because Jarmusch took it directly from his friendship with Riza, who actually had been studying alternative medicine for quite some time um, in his life at that point. In the scene, Riza tells Billy how to help with the smoker's cough, and that's to gargle with half hydrogen peroxide, half water, or even oven cleaner, but I'm not so sure about that one, Um, and that'll help him. And in real life, Jarmusch was witness to Riza giving some well-educated alternative medical advice to a friend, and then later Jarmusch hit hit up Riza um, on how to get rid of a bad cough he was experiencing. And so I know this, that this is, you know, more of a reflection back on a little bit part in Billy's life, and I kind of piggybacked off of a previous blink-and-you-miss-it 
Billy bit part back in episode 28, but I couldn't pass up this opportunity since both Iggy Pop is in Coffee and Cigarettes and um, Repo Man. His scene is also one of my favorites, too. Meeting up with Tom Waits in a diner and pretending like they both can be non-smokers who can just have one cigarette once in a while. It's pretty funny. So as of 2019, Iggy and Billy have been in two movies together, and I can't wait to see The Dead Don't Die. But maybe, if you're wanting to see that, maybe you should find yourself a copy of Coffee and Cigarettes first. I love movies where it's just people talking, interacting, and experiencing each other. And we learn their story from their expressions, inflections, and their voices, and so on. Coffee and Cigarettes is still a chill watch, really cute, and jam-packed with famous faces. And thinking about finding Billy moonlighting as a server at a random diner actually doesn't sound too far off from what could happen in reality. Where does this rank among your uh, Jarmusch movies, Justin? It's not up there with my, you know, I kind of think of it as more of like a, almost like a, it's not like a full, full full-fledged film, Um, but I do enjoy it. It's not up there with my favorite Jarmusch, though. I pretty much appreciate just about anything he's done. If there's one thing I could say for this movie, that it's kind of a compilation movie, and I love that about it because I don't, you don't really see that too often. And whether you're invested in one story more than another, I don't know if it was Jarmusch's intention to like rely on faces that you might recognize interacting and just like completely intimate moments, like having a conversation like people do. Um, but famous faces doing it. But I love the idea behind it, and some some vignettes are a lot better than others, uh, but uh, as a whole, I, I enjoyed this movie. Yeah. And, you know, Bill Murray was real cute in this, I thought. That yeah. was like 2003. He was, he was looking so cute right around then. Yeah. Well, that's your Murray moment. Thank you for that. Of course. I'm glad uh, you connected into some Jim Jarmusch. We we haven't talked about him. We haven't really. Yeah. Just crazy. Yeah. Uh, so was there any final thoughts on Repo Man before we wrap this whole thing up? I don't know, Justin. In this, uh, what do we have? What do I have in front of me? Like 12 pages of notes in front of me? I don't know. Do I have any extra here? Yeah. If you guys can't hear this. I feel like we covered most what we wanted to talk about. I guess since we didn't really get into two um, behind the scenes information, uh, one quick little thing to mention would be uh this was like i said alex cox's first film and so he mm-hmm. was a very green director and harry dean stanton had been in you know five and, dozen movies or something you know yeah. a bit a lot a lot of them small roles but he had you know he knew he knew a thing or two about being on set and, yeah. and making a film and kind of clashed with alex cox uh from what i understand walked off set a couple times couple during times. the uh production um but particularly uh clashed uh the scene where Harry Dean Stanton and the crew uh are they're going to find the person that beat up Emilio Estevez but then they end up seeing the Rodriguez brothers and they have this confrontation and and Harry Dean Stanton has a bat and he wanted to use an actual real baseball bat so he had a real baseball bat and he was swinging it around and uh Robbie Mueller was he actually Rob uh Harry Dean Stanton got mad at Alex Cox, but it was actually Robbie Mueller, cinematographer. It was like, you, can't, you know, 
I'm not going to keep shooting if you're going to be swinging a real bat. They wanted him to use like this sort of prop bat, mm-hmm. but he didn't feel like it would have the same intensity. Granted, I'm not a fan of uh, putting anybody in a dangerous situation, you know, for like arts. But I will say that is one of the few scenes that doesn't play as like intense and realistic. It does feel like it's a little pulled back. Yeah. And I don't know if like Harry Dean Stanton purposely didn't give it his all because he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. Because it is one of the few scenes in the movie that doesn't feel as uh, gritty. It feels like it wasn't going all the way. And I wonder if that, you know, maybe Harry Dean Stanton was right in saying they should have used a real bat and made it more intense or if he was purposely being stubborn and saying, well, I'm not going to, since they didn't let me do what I want to do. But from what I understand, he wasn't the greatest person to work with on the set, but I'm I'm sure there can be clashes when you've got someone who's unexperienced mixed with someone who's been around a block a bunch of times. But uh, ultimately they, you know, it worked out great, you know, on screen. I would have known that there was a bunch of drama behind the scenes. Yeah. And everyone knew that there was tension on the set between those two and and the way that, that both Alex Cox and Harry Dean Stanton have talked about it in the past is is very frank and I can respect that. It, it's actually kind of cool. There's a mutual respect there. Um, but yeah, they, they both were like, yeah, we, we weren't the biggest fans of each other. <laughs> and uh, one la- I guess one last thing I'll say, like related to Harry Dean Stanton, not so much to Repo Man, but... You know, Harry Dean Stanton passed away very recently as well, along with Robbie Mueller's. Yeah. And um, right before Harry Dean Stanton passed away, he did a film uh, called Lucky, and it was actually written directed by the guy that played Norm in Fargo. And really? Yeah. It's actually like a really great little film, and it's basically Harry Dean Stanton kind of playing, I think, mostly himself is a 93-year-old man who's, you know, kind of just like, hey, I, I can't even believe I made it this long, sort of has this, like, screw-all attitude. Um, also has a uh, one of, like, a rare acting role by David Lynch playing a Harry Dean Stanton's doctor. Yeah. But it's a, it's, a, it's a nice little film, and I, I recommend it if you're into Harry Dean Stanton. It's one of the few films where, I think, toward the end of his career where he actually got to be the main star and and really uh, dig into a character. And it was great that, you know, he ended his career and his life on, on that film. So it's one that I recommend if you haven't seen the check it out. You know, you did tell me about this one. And uh, now that I'm actually looking at it, I do remember, or I do remember hearing about this actually. Yeah, this is well, if you're one gonna, of my If you're going to be up late, I'll, I'll, gr- I'll grab that off the shelf and give it to you tonight. I could do that. Well, we should probably wrap it up. This one's gone on pretty long. What do we have coming up next Next episode? Next episode, we have a movie from 1999 called But I'm a Cheerleader. I'm glad we're doing this one. I, I, I lobbied hard for uh, Repo Man. You lobbied hard for But I'm a Cheerleader, and I'm glad the, they're back to back. Back to back, and I'm so happy we're doing this one. I feel like it's one that um, movies have definitely improved after this movie, but this movie kind of started a little bit of a mini revolution in gay cinema yeah so but i'm a cheerleader will be coming up next time and we hope you've enjoyed our discussions on repo man as always thank you for listening uh we can't thank you enough like we've been lately been getting a lot more uh downloads so those of you who are streaming and if you're not downloading it always helps us if you don't mind downloading the episode uh it helps us keep track of like how many listeners we have gives us an idea of of, of like what our growth is you know as far as an audience and listeners for the podcast if you're listening to us on itunes and you like what you hear please feel free to give us five star rating or a view 
Um, if you ever want to contact us, you can reach us anytime. Don't push pause podcast at Gmail. Um, we're very active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Don't push pause podcast. And you can always listen to our current episodes as well. at Don't push Again, can't thank you enough for listening. This is the first, uh, episode of our second season. We're starting fresh. I think we've got a lot of exciting films coming up this year that I'm excited to uh, get into and talk about. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked. I've loved all of our previous 29 episodes. Yeah. But man, I'm really looking forward to to the uh, the new season. Yeah. Till next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks for listening.